I'm recording on my wife's computer and I don't like to bring my water over onto the computer desk because if I happen to knock it over and spill it everywhere and it breaks the computer, um, things will be bad and I don't want to do that. So my water is all the way over on a bookcase, which I cannot easily reach because it's on the other side of the room. So this is going to be a fun record. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you. Please know that you are welcome here regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available in my Google Drive. The link is in the show notes. I'm going to keep this intro short because last Monday my computer died and I'm being forced to use a computer with which I am unfamiliar and which has caused me no end of trouble. I also started my new job as an auto technician this week and it's been kicking me right up the backside, so I've had little to no energy all week. But I am here for you today and I plan to be here for you into the conceivable future. You stick with me and I'll stick with you. If you would like to hire me to do some voiceover or any other voice acting you might need, please feel free to contact me and let me know, and we'll talk rates. Lastly, this story does have elements of racism, and the stance of the Weird Tales podcast is that racism is wrong, regardless of when it was committed. I don't care if it was socially acceptable at the time, that doesn't make it right. It is never right, and it never will be. I don't turn a blind eye to it or edit it out, because to ignore it or wash over it is to do a disservice to all those who have fought against it and who have suffered under it and who fight against and suffer under it today. And if you listen to that and you think that it's something that doesn't need to be said or you are offended that I would bring it up, I would strongly suggest you do some serious soul-searching and figure out why it makes you so uncomfortable. All right, on with the story. The sporting zest with which the excitement of the novel contest had inspired him the day before had now vanished. In its place was a cold and violent purpose. He would send these vermin back to the hell where they belonged, somehow, anyhow. Yes, but how was indeed the question. As things stood at present, it looked as if the devils would raise him and his men from the earth instead. He had underestimated the might of the enemy. He really would have to bestir himself if he hoped to outwit them. The biggest danger now, he decided, was the point where the western section of the ditch curved southwards, and arrived there, he found his worst expectations justified. The very power of the current had huddled the leaves and their crew of ants so close together at the bend that the bridge was almost ready. True, streams of petrol and clumps of earth still prevented a landing, but the number of floating leaves was increasing ever more swiftly. It could not be long now before a stretch of water a mile in length was decked by a green pontoon over which the ants could rush in millions. Leningen galloped to the weir. The damming of the river was controlled by a wheel on its bank. The planter ordered the man at the wheel first to lower the water in the ditch almost to vanishing point, next to wait a moment, then suddenly to let the river in again. This maneuver of lowering and raising the surface, of decreasing then increasing the flow of water through the ditch, was to be repeated over and over again until further notice. This tactic was at first successful. The water in the ditch sank and with it the film of leaves. The green fleet nearly reached the bed and the troops on the far bank swarmed down the slope to it. 
Then a violent flow of water at the original depth raced through the ditch, overwhelming leaves and ants and sweeping them along. This intermittent rapid flushing prevented just in time the almost completed fording of the ditch. But it also flung here and there squads of the enemy vanguard simultaneously up the inner bank. These seemed to know their duty only too well and lost no time accomplishing it. The air rang with the curses of bitten Indians. They had removed their shirts and pants to detect the quicker the upwards hastening insects. When they saw one, they crushed it, and fortunately the onslaught as yet was only by skirmishers. Again and again the water sank and rose, carrying leaves and drowned ants away with it. It lowered once more nearly to its bed, but this time the exhausted defenders waited in vain for the flush of destruction. Leiningen sensed disaster. Something must have gone wrong with the machinery of the dam. Then a sweating peon tore up to him. They're over! While the besieged were concentrating upon the defense of the stretch opposite the wood, the seemingly unaffected line beyond the wood had become the theater of decisive action. Here the defender's front was sparse and scattered. Everyone who could be spared had hurried away to the south. Just as the man at the weir had lowered the water almost to the bed of the ditch, the ants on a wide front began another attempt at a direct crossing like that of the preceding day. Into the emptied bed poured an irresistible throng. Rushing across the ditch, they attained the inner bank before the slow-witted Indians fully grasped the situation. Their frantic screams dumbfounded the man at the weir. Before he could direct the river anew into the safeguarding bed, he saw himself surrounded by raging ants. He ran, like the others, for his life. When Leiningen heard this, he knew the plantation was doomed. He wasted no time bemoaning the inevitable, for as long as there was the slightest chance of success, he had stood his ground, and now any further resistance was both useless and dangerous. He fired three revolver shots into the air, the prearranged signal for his men to retreat instantly within the inner moat, then he rode towards the ranch house. This was two miles from the point of invasion. There was therefore time enough to prepare the second line of defense against the advent of the ants. Of the three great petrol cisterns near the house, one had already been half emptied by the constant withdrawals needed for the pumps during the fight at the water ditch. The remaining petrol in it was now drawn off through underground pipes into the concrete trench which encircled the ranch house and its outbuildings. And there, drifting in twos and threes, Leiningen's men reached him. Most of them were obviously trying to preserve an air of calm and indifference, belied, however, by their restless glances and knitted brows. One could see their belief in a favorable outcome of the struggle was already considerably shaken. The planter called his peons around him. "'Well, lads,' he began, "'we've lost the first round, but we'll smash the beggars yet, don't you worry. Anyone who thinks otherwise can draw his pay here and now and push off. There are rafts enough to spare on the river and plenty of time still to reach them.' Not a man stirred. Leiningen acknowledged his silent vote of confidence with a laugh that was half a grunt. "'That's the stuff, lads.' Too bad if you'd miss the rest of the show, eh? Well, the fun won't start till morning. Once these blighters turn tail, there'll be plenty of work for everyone and higher wages all around. Now, run along and get something to eat. You've earned it all right. In the excitement of the fight, 
The greater part of the day had passed without the men once pausing to snatch a bite. Now that the ants were for the time being out of sight and the wall of petrol gave a stronger feeling of security, hungry stomachs began to assert their claims. The bridges over the concrete ditch were removed. Here and there, solitary ants had reached the ditch. They gazed at the petrol meditatively, then scurried back again. Apparently, they had little interest at the moment for what lay beyond the evil-reeking barrier. The abundant spoils of the plantation were the main attraction. Soon the trees, shrubs, and beds for miles around were hauled with ants zealously gobbling the yield of long, weary months of strenuous toil. As twilight began to fall, a cordon of ants marched around the petrol trench, but as yet made no move towards its brink. Leiningen posted sentries with headlights and electric torches, then withdrew to his office and began to reckon up his losses. He estimated these as large, but in comparison with his bank balance, by no means unbearable. He worked out in some detail a scheme of intensive cultivation which would enable him before very long to more than compensate himself for the damage now being wrought to his crops. It was with a contented mind that he finally betook himself to bed, where he slept deeply until dawn, undisturbed by any thought that next day little more might be left of him than a glistening skeleton. He rose with the sun and went out on the flat roof of his house, and a scene like one from Dante lay around him. For miles, in every direction, there was nothing but a black, glittering multitude, a multitude of rested, sated, but nonetheless voracious ants. Yes, look as far as one might, one could see nothing but that rustling black throng, except in the north where the great river drew a boundary they could not hope to pass. But even the high stone breakwater along the bank of the river, which Leiningen had built as a defense against inundations, was, like the paths, the shorn trees and shrubs, the ground itself, black with ants. So, their greed was not glutted in raising that vast plantation? Not by a long shot. They were all the more eager now on a rich and certain booty. Four hundred men, numerous horses, and bursting granaries. At first it seemed that the petrol trench would serve its purpose. The besiegers sensed the peril of swimming it and made no move to plunge blindly over its brink. Instead, they devised a better maneuver. They began to collect shreds of bark, twigs, and dried leaves, and dropped these into the petrol. Everything green, which could have been similarly used, had long since been eaten. After a time, though, a long procession could be seen bringing from the west the tamarind leaves used as rafts the day before. Since the petrol, unlike the water in the outer ditch, was perfectly still, the refuse stayed where it was thrown. It was several hours before the ants succeeded in covering an appreciable part of the surface. At length, however, they were ready to proceed to a direct attack. Their storm troops swarmed down the concrete side, scrambled over the supporting surface of twigs and leaves, and impelled these over the few remaining streaks of open petrol until they reached the other side. Then they began to climb up this to make straight for the helpless garrison. During the entire offensive, the planter sat peacefully, watching them with interest, but not stirring a muscle. Moreover, 
he had ordered his men not to disturb in any way whatever the advancing horde. So they squatted listlessly along the bank of the ditch and waited for a sign from the boss. The petrol was now covered with ants. A few had climbed the inner concrete walls and were scurrying towards the defenders. "'Everyone back from the ditch!' roared Leiningen. The men rushed away without the slightest idea of his plan. He stooped forward and cautiously dipped into the ditch a stone which split the floating carpet and its living freight to reveal a gleaming patch of petrol. A match spurted, sank down to the oily surface. Leiningen sprang back. In a flash, a towering rampart of fire encompassed the garrison. This spectacular and instant repulse threw the Indians into ecstasy. They applauded, yelled, and stamped like children at a pantomime. Had it not been for the awe in which they held the boss, they would infallibly have carried him shoulder high. It was some time before the petrol burned down to the bed of the ditch and the wall of smoke and flame began to lower. The ants had retreated in a wide circle from the devastation and innumerable charred fragments along the outer bank showed that the flames had spread from the holocaust and the ditch well into the ranks beyond, where they had wrought havoc far and wide. Yet the perseverance of the ants was by no means broken. Indeed, each setback seemed only to wet it. The concrete cooled, the flicker of the dying flames wavered and vanished, petrol from the second tank poured into the trench, and the ants marched forward anew to the attack. The foregoing scene repeated itself in every detail, except that on this occasion less time was needed to bridge the ditch, for the petrol was now already filmed by a layer of ash. Once again they withdrew. Once again petrol flowed into the ditch. Would the creatures never learn that their self-sacrifice was utterly senseless? It really was senseless, wasn't it? Yes, of course it was senseless, provided the defenders had an unlimited supply of petrol. When Leiningen reached this stage of reasoning, he felt for the first time since the arrival of the ants that his confidence was deserting him. His skin began to creep. He loosened his collar. Once the devils were over the trench, there wasn't a chance in hell for him and his men. God, what a prospect to be eaten alive like that. For the third time, the flames immolated the attacking troops and burned down to extinction. Yet the ants were coming on again as if nothing had happened. And meanwhile, Leiningen had made a discovery that chilled him to the bone. Petrol was no longer flowing into the ditch. Something must be blocking the outflow pipe of the third and last cistern. A snake or a dead rat? Whatever it was, the ants could be held off no longer, unless Petrol could by some method be led from the cisterns to the ditch. Then Leiningen remembered that in an outhouse nearby were two old, disused fire engines. Spry as never before in their lives, the peons dragged them out of the shed, connected their pumps to the cisterns, uncoiled, and laid the hose. They were just in time to aim a stream of petrol at a column of ants that had already crossed and drive them back down into the incline into the ditch. Once more, an oily girdle surrounded the garrison. Once more, it was possible to hold the position for the moment.
It was obvious, however, that this last resource meant only the postponement of defeat and death. A few of the peons fell on their knees and began to pray. Others, shrieking insanely, fired their revolvers at the black advancing masses, as if they felt their despair was pitiful enough to sway fate itself to mercy. At length, two of the men's nerves broke. Leiningen saw a naked Indian leap over the north side of the petrol trench, quickly followed by a second. They sprinted with incredible speed towards the river, but their fleetness did not save them. Long before they could attain the rafts, the enemy covered their bodies from head to foot. In the agony of their torment, both sprang blindly into the wide river where enemies no less sinister awaited them. Wild screams of mortal anguish informed the breathless onlookers that crocodiles and sword-toothed piranhas were no less ravenous than ants and even nimbler in reaching their prey. In spite of this bloody warning, more and more men showed they were making up their minds to run the blockade. Anything, even a fight midstream against alligators, seemed better than powerlessly waiting for death to come and slowly consume their living bodies. Leiningen flogged his brain till it reeled. Was there nothing on earth could sweep this devil's spawn back into the hell from which it came? Then, out of the inferno of his bewilderment, rose a terrifying inspiration. Yes, one hope remained, and one alone. It might be possible to dam the great river completely so that its waters would fill not only the water ditch, but overflow into the gigantic saucer of land in which lay the plantation. The far bank of the river was too high for the waters to escape that way. The stone breakwater ran between the river and the plantation. Its only gaps occurred where the horseshoe ends of the water ditch passed into the river. So its waters would not only be forced to inundate into the plantation, they would also be held there by the breakwater until they rose to its own high level. In half an hour, perhaps even earlier, the plantation and its hostile army of occupation would be flooded. The ranch house and outbuildings stood upon rising ground. Their foundations were higher than the breakwater, so the flood would not reach them, and any remaining ants trying to ascend the slope could be repulsed by petrol. It was possible. Yes, if one could only get to the dam... A distance of nearly two miles lay between the ranch house and the weir. Two miles of ants. Those two peons had managed only a fifth of that distance at the cost of their lives. Was there an Indian daring enough after that to run the gauntlet five times as far? Hardly likely, and if there were, his prospect of getting back was almost nil. No, there was only one thing for it. He'd have to make the attempt himself. He might just as well be running as sitting still anyway when the ants finally got him. Besides, there was a bit of a chance. Perhaps the ants weren't so almighty after all. Perhaps he had allowed the mass suggestion of that evil black throng to hypnotize him just as a snake fascinates and overpowers. The ants were building their bridges. Leiningen got up on a chair. Hey, lads, listen to me, he cried. Slowly and listlessly, from all sides of the trench, the men began to shuffle towards him, the apathy of death already stamped on their faces. "'Listen, lads!' he shouted. 
You're frightened of those beggars, but you're a damn sight more frightened of me, and I'm proud of you. There's still a chance to save our lives by flooding the plantation from the river. Now, one of you might manage to get as far as the weir, but he'd never come back. Well, I'm not going to let you try it. If I did, I'd be worse than one of those hands. No, I called the tune, and now I'm going to pay the piper. The moment I'm over the ditch, set fire to the petrol. That'll allow time for the flood to do the trick. Then all you have to do is wait here all snug and quiet till I'm back. Yes, I'm coming back, trust me, he grinned, when I've finished my slimming cure. He pulled on high leather boots, drew heavy gauntlets over his hands, and stuffed the spaces between breeches and boots, gauntlets and arms, shirt and neck with rags soaked in petrol. With close-fitting mosquito goggles, he shielded his eyes, knowing too well the ants' dodge of first robbing their victims of sight. Finally, he plugged his nostrils and ears with cotton wool and let the peons drench his clothes with petrol. He was about to set off when the old Indian medicine man came up to him. He had a wondrous salve, he said, prepared from a species of chafer whose odor was most intolerable to ants. Yes, this odor protected these chafers from the attacks of even the most murderous ants. The Indian smeared the boss's boots, his gauntlets, and his face over and over with the extract. Leiningen then remembered the paralyzing effect of ants' venom, and the Indian gave him a gourd full of the medicine he had administered to the bitten peon at the water ditch. The planter drank it down without noticing its bitter taste. His mind was already at the weir. He started off towards the northwest corner of the trench. With a bound, he was over and among the ants. The beleaguered garrison had no opportunity to watch Leiningen's race against death. The ants were climbing the inner bank again. The lurid ring of petrol blazed aloft. For the fourth time that day, the reflection from the fires shone on the sweating faces of the imprisoned men and on the reddish-black cuirasses of their oppressors. The red and blue dark-edged flames leapt vividly now, celebrating... what? The funeral pyre of the four hundred, or the hosts of destruction? Leiningen ran. He ran in long, equal strides with only one thought, one sensation in his being. He must get through. He dodged all trees and shrubs. Except for the split seconds his souls touched the ground, the ant should have no opportunity to alight on him. That they would get to him soon, despite the salve on his boots, the petrol in his clothes, he realized only too well. But he knew even more surely that he must, and that he would, get to the weir. Apparently the salve was some use after all. Not until he reached halfway did he feel ants under his clothes and a few on his face. Mechanically, in his stride, he struck at them, scarcely conscious of their bites. He saw he was drawing appreciably nearer the weir. The distance grew less and less, sank to five hundred, three, two, one hundred yards. Then he was at the weir and gripping the ant-hauled wheel. Hardly had he seized it when a horde of infuriated ants flowed over his hands, arms, and shoulders. He started the wheel. Before it turned once on its axis, the swarm covered his face. Leiningen strained like a madman, his lips pressed tight. If he opened them to draw breath... He turned and turned. Slowly, the dam lowered until it reached the bed of the river. 
Already the water was overflowing the ditch. Another minute, and the water was pouring through the nearby gap in the breakwater. The flooding of the plantation had begun. Leiningen let go of the wheel. Now, for the first time, he realized he was coated from head to foot with a layer of ants. In spite of the petrol, his clothes were full of them. Several had got to his body or were clinging to his face. Now that he had completed his task, he felt the smart raging over his flesh from the bites of sawing and piercing insects. Frantic with pain, he almost plunged into the river. To be ripped and splashed to shreds by piranhas? Already he was running the return journey, knocking ants from his gloves and jacket, brushing them from his bloodied face, squashing them to death under his clothes. One of the creatures bit him just below the rim of his goggles. He managed to tear it away, but the agony of the bite and its etching acid drilled into the eye nerves. He saw now through a circle of fire into a milky mist. Then he ran for a time almost blinded, knowing that if he once tripped and fell... The old Indian's brew didn't seem much good. It weakened the poison a bit, but didn't get rid of it. His heart pounded as if it would burst. Blood roared in his ears. A giant's fist battered his lungs. Then he could see again, but the burning girdle of petrol appeared infinitely far away. He could not last half that distance. Swift changing pictures flashed through his mind, episodes in his life, while in another part of his brain... A cool and impartial onlooker informed this ant-blurred, gasping, exhausted bundle named Leiningen that such a rushing panorama of scenes from one's past is seen only in the moment before death. A stone in the path, too weak to avoid it. The planter stumbled and collapsed. He tried to rise. He must be pinned under a rock. It was impossible. The slightest movement was impossible. Then, all at once, he saw, starkly clear and huge, and right before his eyes, furred with ants, towering and swaying in its death agony, the pampas stag. In six minutes, gnawed to the bone. God, he couldn't die like that. And something outside him seemed to drag him to his feet. He tottered. He began to stagger forward again. Through the blazing ring hurtled an apparition which as soon as it reached the ground on the inner side fell full length and did not move. Leiningen, at the moment he made that leap through the flames, lost consciousness for the first time in his life. As he lay there with glazing eyes and lacerated face, he appeared a man returned from the grave. The peons rushed to him, stripped off his clothes, tore away the ants from a body that seemed almost one open wound. In some places, the bones were showing. They carried him into the ranch house. As the curtain of flames lowered, one could see in place of the illimitable host of ants an extensive vista of water. The thwarted river had swept over the plantation, carrying with it the entire army. The water had collected and mounted in the great saucer, while the ants had in vain attempted to reach the hill on which stood the ranch house. The girdle of flames held them back. And so, imprisoned between water and fire, they had been delivered into the annihilation that was their god. And near the farther mouth of the water ditch, where the stone mole had its second gap, the ocean swept the lost battalions into the river to vanish forever. 
The ring of fire dwindled as the water mounted to the petrol trench and quenched the dimming flames. The inundation rose higher and higher because its outflow was impeded by the timber and underbrush it had carried along with it. Its surface required some time to reach the top of the high stone breakwater and discharge over it the rest of the shattered army. It swelled over ant-stippled shrubs and bushes until it washed against the foot of the knoll whereon the besieged had taken refuge. For a while, an alluvial of ants tried again and again to attain this dry land, only to be repulsed by streams of petrol back into the merciless flood. Leiningen lay on his bed, his body swathed from head to foot in bandages. With fomentations and salves, they had managed to stop the bleeding and had dressed his many wounds. Now they thronged around him, one question in every face. Would he recover? He won't die, said the old man who had bandaged him, if he doesn't want to. The planter opened his eyes. Everything in order? he asked. They're gone, said his nurse. To hell. He held out to his master a gourd full of a powerful sleeping draft. Leiningen gulped it down. "'Told you I'd come back,' he murmured. "'Even if I am a bit streamlined.' He grinned and shut his eyes. He slept. And that was Leiningen versus the Ants by Carl Stevenson. I hope you enjoyed it and it didn't make you too itchy. I got a little itchy reading it, if I'm honest. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to support me on Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Weird Tales Podcast. Pontus Fredrickson, thank you so much. Andrew Buchanan, thank you. Samantha Hickey, thank you, and I hope you are enjoying the Moonstone. Damon Bowles, thank you. Marco Van Putin, thank you so much. And everyone who supports me on Patreon, an extra big super special thank you this week. Because of your generosity and support, about half of my computer's repair bill was covered, and the other half was covered by a very generous donation from a patron, for which both I and my wife are extremely grateful. I was, in a word, shocked when I saw the email telling me I had a donation like that, and I cannot express how grateful I am that I have patrons who are willing to give so much to support the show and to help out my stupid little hobby. Thank you all so much for the constant communication and for being so generous and helpful. I'm a bitter, jaded, cynical, pessimistic, borderline sociopathic asshole at the best of times. But the kindness and generosity shown to me this week when I've done absolutely nothing to deserve it just kind of makes me feel like the Grinch at the end of the story. So, all right, that'll wrap it up for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and get vaccinated if you haven't. Continue to wear a mask even if you have. We damn well had COVID in retreat, and now it's surging back with an even more dangerous variant because people refuse to get vaccinated or wear a mask. This could have been done a year ago. A year ago if everyone had just done that, but people fucked around and found out. Okay. Sorry for the swearing. I'll bleep that out in the editing. Get vaccinated, wear a mask, Punch a racist in the face and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening. 
and I'll see you next week.